When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse and discuss the very latest updates from the front lines of the war and speak to Lyubov Sobolska, a hybrid warfare expert who is also an advisor to the Ukrainian government. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 15th of July, day 142. And today I'm joined by Assistant Foreign Editor Katie O'Neill and our foreign correspondent Colin Freeman, reporting in Ukraine. I started by asking Katie about the attacks on Mikhailov in the past 24 hours. So overnight in the Mikolaev region, we saw a number of missile strikes landing on what appear to be two university buildings, um, which is quite an ominous development. Um, And in the past couple of hours, there have also been reports that uh, in Kharkiv, Ukraine's second city, a number of educational institutions, what look like schools, have also been targeted. So difficult when you see those two incidents happening so closely together uh, to say that it's a coincidental, it's almost kind of appearing uh, as a as a pattern and a coordinated effort from uh, from Putin's forces there. When you see those two um, incidents of universal institute or sorry university or you know education institutions being being targeted in the past twenty four hours. And there's a very particular tragic case that I know you wanted to talk about, Katie, um, of a four year old girl. Could you just fill in our listeners on on what's happened here? Yeah, yesterday we saw some some really troubling scenes. I think, you know, as this war progresses and we're covering it so closely day in, day out, things start to almost, you know, and, and it shouldn't be this way, but become normalised or we get used to the different depictions of war that, that we're seeing. But every now and again, there are uh, incidents and, and acts of violence that sort of shock us back to uh, the reality of the brutality of the situation. And one of those incidents occurred yesterday in a region called Venitsia, which is in West Western Ukraine. It's far away from the battlefield. 
and the images that we were seeing from this region before the strikes occurred really show how far it is from the battlefield and how the people there were really going about their days as as normal before uh, terror rained down upon them. One of the, the those such images is a video that was captured by a woman that was living there. Her name is Irina Dimitrova. Um, she is a blogger and she was walking along with her daughter on what appeared to be a nice sunny day in that region. Um, less than an hour before uh, missiles rained down on a car park beside an office block. She was out for a walk with her daughter, Lisa, um, beautiful young girl, a toddler. She was pushing her own pram and they were striding down the streets together and her mother shared that video on social media Tragically, Lisa lost her life in that attack and her mother lost her leg in the incident too. Um, It's been widely condemned, as you can imagine, by both Ukraine and the international community. Um, Ukraine's first lady, Olena Zelenska, also paid tribute to Liza. She had um, emerged work with her previously on a Christmas advert which featured disabled children and she talked about how Liza was so lively that the children were pictured painting and doing arts and crafts during that um, Christmas advert and Liza she said wasn't just painting the the you know art paraphernalia that they had there but she was also painting the crew and the, the various people around on that, that set. Um, Liza was one of three children that were killed in this attack. The death toll has now risen to 23 with hundreds, hundreds, pardon me, injured. Um, it's kind of unclear at this point why this, this region so far from the battlefield was targeted. Ukraine is saying it's a blatant act of terrorism. Um, they're saying that there were no military targets or anything of infrastructural importance in that area. And um, yeah, people there remain very uh, perplexed as to why Russia uh, and Putin's forces decided to, to target that region. Just before I turn to Colin, I understand there's been some concern that Russia may be using captured Western weapons to commit and cover up atrocities in Ukraine. Um, Just wonder if you've got any thoughts or or, um, updates on that question. Yeah, so this is a report that we carried today from Joe Barnes, who is our Brussels correspondent, both in the Daily Telegraph and on the website. Uh, Joe reports that investigators are probing uh, evidence that suggests that Russia is using Ukrainian kit that they are stealing to commit atrocities in Ukraine, um, to both commit and to conceal because you know, war crime prosecutors that are going to be analysing um, Russian brutality in Ukraine have their work cut out for them. It's very difficult to prove a war crime. There's, you know, a whole number of thresholds that need to be met before you can prove or ascertain that something is a war crime. And that task becomes even more complicated uh, if the Russians are using weapons that, you know, are registered to be Ukraine or, you know, understood to be Ukrainian weapons. It's also a matter of concern for the West, you know, if, if, if perhaps might throw up a reluctance in the West if we get a strong sense of the fact that Russians are using Western weapons to commit atrocities against uh, Ukrainians. So that's something that um, some Western leaders are, are growing increasingly fearful of. Uh, Ukraine is also, in response to this, trying to step up its tracking of Western weapons and of its own weapons um, to both stop them falling into Russian hands and to be able to track when they do fall into Russian hands, which might make things uh, slightly more uh, easier when it comes to you know the international uh, courts of justice probing these war crimes. Um, so, yeah, that, that report came from Joe Burns today. He was at a conference in The 
Hague uh, in the Netherlands yesterday, uh, which was looking at war crimes and had a, a big international contingent there pledging to uh, to bring Russia to account for the atrocities that it is carrying out in Ukraine. And of course, many of our listeners will be familiar with Joe, who quite often appears on this podcast. Um, and that update that Katie was just giving us also comes uh, on top of, a, of another one, which is that Vladimir Skolensky has called for a Nuremberg-style court to hold Moscow to account. Um, Colin, Katie's already given a bit of an update on what's been going on, on in Mikolaev, but I know that you're familiar with that city. You've spent time there. Just wondering if you can give a sense of what the city is like and how it will be reacting to what has taken place there in the past 24 hours. Yeah, Mikolaev is down on the south coast. It's a, a Soviet-built port city, um, home to maybe about 300,000 people or so, probably roughly the same size as somewhere like Hull, I would guess. Um, I was last there about 10 days, a fortnight ago, and as you'll have seen today, there's been further missile attacks there, I think 10 separate explosions or so, two of which have hit um, university buildings and um, sent large plumes of smoke up onto the skyline. This is a pretty familiar morning scenario for Mikolaev these days, on most uh, um, days now, certainly when I was there, you would be awoken to the sounds of explosions around 5 a.m. They do seem to be targeted uh, in a pretty random fashion. Sometimes they hit buildings, sometimes they land harmlessly in the middle of nowhere. When I was there um, a fortnight ago, they had one that um, took the top off an apartment building, killing at least six people. Um, just a couple of days ago, there was another one that hit uh, the top of a, a hotel, took the, the top two floors off, although I don't think anybody was staying there. Um, likewise, with the latest salvo of missiles that hit the the university buildings, the universities, as I understand, have been shut since the start of the war and would have been shut at the moment anyway because it's not term time. What are the Russians doing? It's hard to be certain. It appears to be just a, a relatively kind of random pattern of shell fire uh, primarily designed just to, to cause fear and terror as we see in um, in Venezia um, uh, that, we just talk, that we were just talking about um, uh, and as I've said before on this podcast that the casualty counts are going up it used to be that most of these attacks killed maybe one or two people now they seem to be we were regularly talking about death tolls of 10, 15, 20 or more why do you think that might be, Colin? I've been racking my brains about it. I don't know. The, the, clearly, there are more of these attacks now than there were when I was last here for a reporting stint in April, May. One of the reasons prior to now that the, the casualty counts were generally low was that um, when a missile landed on a building, often it wasn't aimed direct, didn't hit, score a direct hit. Let's say a missile hit an apartment block. You would, I would go along and you'd see the damage caused. The missile would often have hit just next door to it or partially glanced off it. You'd see a, an enormous kind of sea of debris, smashed windows everywhere, um, shrapnel and debris from bricks and other stuff that the missile had kind of thrown up in its path, a, a huge kind of cloud of debris um, land that's scattered over a wide area, several hundred metres sometimes, and you think there must be a dozen people killed here, 
maybe just not not necessarily by the bomb direct, but like by a half brick that's chucked up in the air 200 feet and lands on someone's head. Um, And yet often the casualty count would only be maybe a a couple of people badly hurt sometimes and a few walking wounded, Um, sometimes maybe two or three dead. And from my recollection of the early days, that was about as bad as it got. Um, I think what it, it may be possibly that there are more people around now um, than there were back in those days, that the, some of the tower blocks are, uh, are busier, in, in, as in many people who originally fled Ukraine have, have come back. Um, it is also true that when, when missiles land, when everybody's tucked up in bed, so relatively few people other than those directly in the path of a missile tend to get killed. Um, but I suspect also that possibly the missiles they're using are of a larger calibre than they, they used to be and just more lethal. So clearly something is going on because if you looked at the casualty figures on a graph, you would notice a very clear spike in, I would say, the last month or so. Um, it, it is something we ought to investigate really just to see if we can make any rhyme or reason of it, although detecting rhyme or reason on the in this particular um, uh, on this particular issue of why the Russians are apparently randomly shelling anything is quite hard. Thank you, Colin. Um, just another development that's taken place in the last twenty four hours is that U.S. citizens have been told to leave Ukraine. Are we seeing a, a ramping up of tensions here? Why Why would the U.S. make this decision now? Um, I'm afraid you've caught me on the hop on that one. I only saw the briefest note on that earlier, and I don't think it made any specific um, uh, any, any specific comment on why they were being told. Um, it could be that uh, um, the, the, the U.S. embassy has received some specific notice of uh, an intelligence threat, um, for example, Russian sabotage groups attempting to abduct. U.S. citizens. There are certainly plenty of Americans here. There are Americans who are volunteering in civilian capacity. There are Americans who are here as military volunteers fighting with the International Legion. And there are Americans who've been living here in Ukraine, just as there are Britons who decided never to go uh, to to leave in the first place. Um, So there's plenty of them around. Thank you. And there's been another interesting development just relating to the broader military state of Russia. Um, That is that the Russian army would need another 34,000 soldiers to restore full force to Ukraine. I don't know if either of you want to comment on this, but of course it speaks to the ongoing theme of recent weeks of this podcast, which is the attritional nature of this war and whether as it goes on, that benefits or favours the Ukrainians over the Russians or vice versa. There's an interesting piece in, of analysis on this in the Financial Times today, just positing that very question with um, certain experts that we've actually had on this podcast um, feeding into that as well. And essentially saying that um, that is the great unknown. And, and until we see in the coming months whether... Russia is able to recoup its losses, um, we will not be able to reach a conclusion about the direction of travel. Of course, Putin has still not uh, 
ordered a general assembly of soldiers, um, a general call out. Uh, he is still trying to claim that this is a special operation. Um, and if that doesn't change, then that may well cause him considerable issues for regrouping and re-establishing the, the, the losses that he has gained so far. But lots of uncertain questions, as I say. And, and the other big one, of course, being whether Ukraine is capable of launching counterattacks and seizing back territory that has been taken by the Russians. Largely until now, this has been a conflict that has been the Ukrainians very, very successfully defending against a Russian onslaught. Um, but what we haven't seen is the real offensive capabilities of the Ukrainian army and whether they will be able to take back Kurzon um, and other cities that have until now been lost. I don't know if either of you have, have, have a thought on, on any of that. Well, I think it's interesting, um, Francis, when you're speaking about the um, increase in counterattacks and this idea that Ukraine it very much appears to be beginning to try and to reclaim uh, territory. We're seeing sort of incrementally um, in regions such as Kurzon, uh, Ukraine taking back villages that have uh, been captured by the Russians there. And I wonder, just going back to that previous point about the US you know, telling citizens to get out as they did and as um, as you know, most Western countries did at the beginning of the invasion. I wonder if that's uh, sort of speaking to this idea that Ukraine is p- perhaps getting on more of a war footing now and, and um, changing its tactic or diversifying its tactics from strictly defensive to offensive. And we had Ukrainian forces during the week saying, you know, they haven't b- even begun uh, their efforts to begin retaking areas that have been captured by um, the Russians. In terms of the Russian um, uh, forces, yeah, the Kremlin has ordered a volunteer mobilization of up to 34,000 soldiers. It's part of this push to, to shift Russia onto a war footing, um, perhaps, you know, without having to declare a full mobilization, which, as you say, Putin has failed uh, or refused to do up until this point, still calling it a special military operation. Um, but, you know, we've spoken for weeks and uh, on this podcast and reported for weeks about this idea that, uh, but, you know, just essentially Russia needs more troops. We carried a report a couple of weeks ago saying that prisoners, uh, inmates in a St. Peter- Petersburg prison were being offered something like 2,000 um pounds a month to go and to 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 fight in Ukraine and part of their reward would be clemency um, upon their uh, release. So yeah, nothing new in, in terms of this idea that Russia desperately needs more troops to join its uh, its its front. Thank you, Katie. And just on the diplomatic front as well, there's been some interesting developments. Um, The G20, of course, is meeting today. Um, Viktor Orban, the head of of, of Hungary, has been condemning the economic sanctions on Russia. That will come, of course, as no surprise, given his close relationship with Putin, Uh, whilst America has continued to condemn the brutal war in Ukraine. And no doubt there'll be some interesting developments that we can cover on Monday, uh, what comes out of the G20. Just another as well. Well, interesting um, fact that I saw this morning and just wanted to flag for listeners, which is um, we covered Germany earlier in the week, which is facing yeah, rationing, energy rationing as a consequence of the war in Ukraine and its uh, reliance on Russian oil and gas. Well, despite this, 70% of Germans back Ukraine 
um, and a strong majority of them want to continue supporting Ukraine in fighting against Russia, even if it means paying more for energy. So quite an interesting one, I think, um, and one that no doubt will lead to some analysis in Berlin amongst the political class about how their approach to the war has been conducted thus far, which I think has been very sensitive to this idea that the German public may well be uh, against the idea of supporting Ukraine indefinitely if it means that they will be energy rationing. But it would appear, based on that poll at least, that that is not uh, the case. Um, Colin, I want us to be able to discuss in detail a big report that you've done on medics in Ukraine. But just before we cover that, there's been a breaking news story, Katie, that I just wanted um, to ask if you could cover for us of a British volunteer who's died in in uh, a prison in Donetsk. Um, could you just could you just talk to that for us quickly? Yeah, so this uh, gentleman's name is Paul Yuri. He was captured by Russian forces in April. He was described as a British volunteer who was providing humanitarian aid in Zaporizhia. He was, in fact, trying to evacuate a mother and a daughter at the time when he was captured at a checkpoint. Uh, He has been in custody uh, in Russian hands since April, uh, charged with committing mercenary activities along with another British man called Dylan Healy. Uh, We knew back in April that he suffered with um, a number of health conditions, including diabetes. He also had some cardiovascular uh, issues and uh, the Russian uh, separatists uh, in the Donetsk People's Republic are saying today that he has died. Uh, The Foreign Office and Number 10 have not confirmed this yet, although the Number 10 Downing Street are saying that it's an alarming um, uh, development, the news of of Mr. Yuri's death. Uh, His mother has commented on it, saying that it's devastating on on social media, her name being Linda, um, and that NGO that he uh, worked with also confirming the report, uh, which has emerged in the Russian media today. Thank you very much, Katie. Colin, no doubt you've got some thoughts on this. We understand that the, the Red, both the Red Cross and the British Foreign Office, I think, had requested access to, to check on uh, Mr. Yuri's welfare, but they had not been able to go and see him in person for whatever reason. I understand that they were not permitted to. Um, and that meant that they had to do that remotely. He was apparently allowed some phone calls home during which he did not apparently, welfare phone calls, as it were, during which he did not apparently express any explicit concerns about his his health beyond the the, the usual, um, uh, sorry, beyond the the, the fact that we know he he was um, uh, diabetic and in need of insulin. Um, Whether he uh, didn't express those uh, concerns because he was, uh, you know, in in captivity and under duress or not, we're not sure. Um, But we do also understand that there is a a general chronic shortage of insulin in um, Russia. And uh, it it may be just speculation at the moment, but it's certainly speculative. It certainly is possible that um, that contributed the fact that he that that contributed to his death, um, simply not being able to get enough of the of, of the medication that he needed. Well, thank you, Colin, and thank you, Katie, who I I know has to return to to the desk now. Um, so, staying with you, Colin, um, the. It's been a a fascinating reading a report that you did on volunteer medics in Ukraine. Um, Just wanted to sort of start really on if you could summarise 
your findings and, and, and interviews there and, and talk about where they work and what they do. Yeah, so we went up uh, to Slovyansk in the Donbass region a few days ago. This is basically the next city in line to get the hammering from the Russians uh, in the aftermath of their capture of Severodonetsk, which is about 50 miles further north. The Russians are now advancing towards Slovyansk. It's getting shelled occasionally. Um, we, we spent a couple of days there. It's very, very quiet. Uh, there are a few people still living there. Um, and uh, also there is a base there for uh, an organization called the Pyrogov Volunteer, First Volunteer Mobile Hospital, I think they're called, which is a volunteer group set up by uh, um, Ukrainian medics, civilian medics, a little bit like Médecins Sans Frontières, I suppose you could, you could say, where you have groups of civilian medics um, who go out and work in direct support of the Ukrainian military, um, providing their expertise. These are guys who, and, and girls who give up their time uh, to go and serve on the front line or, or rather to assist um, on the front line in terms of doing um, medical evacuations. Many of them hold down normal jobs in, in hospitals in Kiev, uh, working as cancer specialists, um, trauma specialists in particular. And they've, they've been doing this since 2014 when, you, when Ukraine first started um, its hostilities with Russia um, after the um, the annexation of Crimea and the the uh, Mr. Putin sending in uh, his so-called little green men into into the Donbass region, so they they've been around for a while, but that they're, they're they're currently finding things quite uh, involved in some quite challenging situations up in the Donbass. Thank you. And and just how exactly do these medical hospitals work? I mean, do they are they sort of on call, or is it a situation where they're they're always present? Um, and uh, or is it ad hoc? What's what's the sort of just describe for us what the the, the average day is like for one of these volunteers? So these guys are based in a, a disused building in Slovyansk. It, it happens to be near a civilian hospital as well, where they sometimes also work and lend a hand, but. What their essential task is, um, is to drive up in ambulances up towards the front lines and then, uh, you know, through, through the conflict zone, basically, and then just short of the conflict zone at agreed checkpoints, they pick up anybody who, is, um, who has been injured and needs evacuating back to the, the hospital's further, further rear. Um, and in the process, they also deliver the vital first aid and do the vital triage that um, that takes place in those sort of first uh, first sort of immediate hours after somebody has been been injured. So the um, the Ukrainian forces, if someone's been badly hurt, um, will take that casualty back away from the front lines to these agreed evacuation points, sometimes only two or three kilometres away from where the fighting is, which is pretty damn close. These ambulances will then come up there and pick them up um, and and then um, then essentially try and keep the, the, the soldiers, the wounded soldiers alive until they can actually get to a hospital where um, where, where more medical resources can be, be thrown at them. Um, basically volunteer paramedics in, in, that, in that sense. Um, I asked one of them what it was like going up towards the front lines to pick up people. And um, excuse my French, but he, he summed it up thus. 
He said the, it is, the, the fear is absolutely intense. You want to vomit, shit yourself and cry all at the same time, which I think probably um, sums it up fairly effectively. Absolutely. Um, there are some genuinely extremely moving stories in your account um, from interviewing and speaking to these volunteer medics, including one of a man who uh, was was had been severely wounded um, but refused to be evacuated without his sunglasses. Um, what was your general takeaway from the morale of the volunteers and the soldiers that you spoke to? I think the volunteers themselves, their morale was good. Most of these people are, are very committed to what they're doing. They don't have to be there. Um, they're, they're not, they're, they all have responsible civilian jobs as cancer specialists, as traumatologists in places like Kiev, in the big city hospitals. Several of them told me that they actually had to get permission from their bosses uh, to to come out and serve in the Donbass. I, I don't think it was hard to get that permission, but it, it, it was that they have other things they could be doing. Um, amongst them, the morale was pretty high. They haven't lost anybody despite doing these dangerous runs up into the, uh, you know, towards the front lines, where they, they apparently are targets as well. Um, that their ambulances are not painted with Red Cross signs on them or anything saying, please don't shoot us. They're camouflage. I asked them why. They said that's because the Russians, if they see us, they will shoot at us. There is no kind of, you know, no Geneva Convention um, up in that area of the front line. Um, one other thing that they, they they said that struck me quite a bit was that um, that they they that they were talking about whether the, the fact that in Kiev now, where a lot of them spend most of their time, they they do rotations out in the Donbas, um, life is gradually returning to normal, and they get a sense that for some people it's as if the war is no longer happening. And one of them said to me, yeah, you know, we're going to get a whole generation of, uh, of young men here who are badly injured, um, uh, who are going to come home with missing limbs, uh, mental health problems. Some of them are going to be wearing colostomy bags, which is, is not something that um, a lot of young men want to be um, going around with. Um, you know, the, 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 he, was, he mentioned that to, to, to reinforce, I think, the point that the, the life of a wounded volunteer after um, uh, the, the life of a wounded soldier after service is not necessarily a happy or a glamorous one, and, and he questioned just how much that the life that they were that the, that they were returning to in Kiev, how much people were really geared up to 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 accept them, um, given that a lot of people in Kiev now you know seem to be mainly concerned about. Um, uh, the, the 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 price of of goods and, and just ordinary everyday life again, and he he seemed a little bit exercised about that, um, and he said that some of the veterans had also said you know we, we now go back to Kiev and we just find that everyone's forgotten that there's a war going on, um, so there there is definitely a bit of a concern there. One of them who was a cancer specialist also said look I he found it particularly difficult because he said um, I I deal with a lot of grief and trauma in my job but it's mainly elderly people who are towards the end of their lives and here I'm dealing with young guys my own age who you know should have their whole lives ahead of them and there I am seeing their bodies completely torn apart for um, uh, for a war that is not not our fault and he said he, he found that pretty hard to deal with. And Colin you're coming to the end of your most recent trip to Ukraine any reflections on on what you've seen and, and what the general mood is over there? 
generally speaking, despite what I've just said about the, the comments I've just passed on about this um, from these medics saying that they feel there's a bit of a schism developing between those who are still fighting the war and those who are, you know, sitting, uh, sitting in Kiev and life gradually returning to normal. Uh, most people still seem pretty much behind the war. Um, I think we are, it, it, it's very, very far from, uh, from over and we are entering some new stages. In particular, I, I, I'm currently down in a town in a city called Zaporizhzhia, which is the close, lies close to the city of Kherson, which was occupied, which is, is currently occupied by Russian troops. It was one of the, the first cities to, the, 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 in fact, it was the only major city that the Russians took without a significant fight. And um, for the last five months, most of its residents have been living under occupation. Many of them are currently fleeing Kherson because the Ukrainian military has said it's about to launch a big counteroffensive uh, to retake Kherson. So that will certainly be a, a, an interesting thing to watch and a potential tipping point in the war. Because if the Ukrainians want to retake Kherson, um, they 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 have the challenge of trying to retake it in in terms of retaking to this time it will be them on the offensive and it's always easier for that that that, that will mean the Russians are defending and it's always easier for to defend rather than attack and they will obviously want to be a little bit careful about shelling their own city and their own people on the other hand they have uh, the advantage that Kherson, most of Kherson's population are not happy about the Russians being there and already there have been um, attacks on uh, Russian um, Russian troops there and um, so, so if the Ukrainians do make any persistent attempt or, or real attempt to take Kherson, that is likely to div divert um, quite a lot of Russian military assets from the Donbass down there to defend it. And it's, it could be difficult. It could degenerate into some very tough guerrilla warfare for the Russians if they're having to try and keep fight, fight a, 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 an enemy from the outside while also facing partisan attacks from the inside. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. But I don't think the Russians can afford to give it up because if the Ukrainians liberate Kherson, that's certainly the way it will be presented, that will be an enormous propaganda coup for Ukraine. And um, uh, you, you have to kind of really wonder whether even Mr. Putin, with his considerable powers of propaganda, can really... Um, uh, wipe that one away as a, as, a, as a victory of some sort or continue to pretend that this entire campaign is, is still the success that he says it is. Well, thank you very much, Colin. Um, and obviously on that point, we we remain to see there, there's, there's conversations that have been taking place, we understand, between Western officials and the Ukrainian uh, government and army about the timing of said counter effects, uh, offenses. There are concerns among Western leaders that a premature offensive that goes wrong would be absolutely devastating for um, the morale of the Ukrainian cause and potentially some of the more wobbly members of the international coalition that are supporting them um, may, may, if you know, if there were a sort of a failure on, from the Ukrainian perspective, that may have an impact on, on the weapons they send and, and on 
peace calls, etc. So um, there is, I think, concern, particularly amongst the British and the Americans, that, that the timing of this is is right um, and and the, and one that will will um, ultimately lead, as I say, to some sort of victory for the Ukrainians that could have a huge um, impact on on the tone in which the conversation is talked about. Um, I think it's almost time for us to wrap up, Colin. So um, what are your final thoughts as we approach the the, the, the next week and, and the weekend? Um, getting home. <laughs> no, um, my final thoughts, I think, uh, are probably uh, w- w- yesterday we, we had an interesting day um, interviewing people who were coming out of Kherson. Um, and it w- this whole war, I suppose, has um, uh, we, we've done a lot of stories of people fleeing checkpoints or fleeing through checkpoints, evacuees fleeing the fighting in one fashion or another. So that, that this is a this is a familiar um, scenario that we we, we 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 were covering yesterday. We were down at this checkpoint where the people were coming in from Kherson. But in this in this respect, one respect it was different in that. Um, these are people who've lived now for five months under Russian occupation. Um, and during that time in Kherson, life has pretty much degenerated um, to the what it was like back in the post-Soviet period when Kherson, a, 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 you know, a former shipbuilding port like Mikhailov, felt saw some pretty hard times. The, ship, the shipbuilding industry shut and people were living hand to mouth. Um, they were, you know, li- living on food that was sold on the streets, goods sold out of car boots, um, hardly any medicines, hardly any, um, hardly any sustenance of any sort. And by all accounts, that's what life is like in Kherson now. Um, so when, when they come back, um, uh, back out of Kherson now and into back into uh, normal Ukraine, the, the, the normal land of Ukraine. Um, it, it feels like I think how Soviet citizens probably felt when they when they left uh, Russia in Brezhnev's time and went into the in, into into the West or crossing from East Berlin into West Berlin. A lot of them were saying, oh, "I can't believe how many nice things there are to buy in the shops," and also saying, "I can't believe it, what it's like to to speak freely again." One guy I spoke to said, "You know, I, I, this is the first time I've spoken freely to anybody without worrying um, who was listening in to me for the last." five months so um uh yeah it's it it, 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 it on has not been a good advert for life under russian rule thanks colin and now over to sophie ko one of our journalists here at the telegraph today i'm joined by lyubov tobolska a hybrid war expert who's an advisor to the ukrainian armed forces firstly lyubov I was wondering if you could give us an idea of your background, where you're from, and what is it that you do? Thank you for having me today. Uh, so uh, before the invasion in 2014, I used to be a journalist, precisely a TV journalist. And then after 2014, I was invited to uh, Ukrainian Armed Forces as an advisor on communication. Since then, I've been analyzing Russian hybrid uh, warfare, Russian operations of influence with the main focus on disinformation. I, uh, last uh, year, I launched a government center on strategic communication and information security. And what does that government center do exactly? It uh, identifies Russian disinformation and uh, also promote and push Ukrainian narratives. 
Uh, it also detects Russian uh, disinformation players, uh, disinformation actors, uh, both in Ukraine and abroad, and uh, uh, explain the broader audience uh, Russian uh, operations of uh, influence and generally the mechanism of uh, Russian hybrid warfare. Fascinating. We've we've spoken a lot on this podcast before about exactly how Russian disinformation takes place, where it um, where it exists online. How do you think that cyber warfare or disinformation from Russia has changed since you started this work in hybrid warfare and communications? First of all, I would say that uh, when we speak about Russian warfare, um, uh, it shouldn't be narrowed down only to cyber uh, interventions and uh, disinformation. It also involves uh, economic interferences, diplomatic interferences, uh, gas and oil, but generally trade uh, operations and many others. So it's a it's a more broader scale. Uh, it's not just cyber and disinformation. Regarding the change of tactics, I would say that uh, in 2014, Russia uh, was trying. Since 2014, Russia has been trying to polarize the Ukrainian society. Russia was trying to push very specific narratives within uh, Ukraine, but also uh, for our international partners. And generally, if we speak about disinformation, uh, I would say that Russia works pretty skillfully with different audiences. And uh, it's uh, uh, Russian domestic audience, it's Ukrainian audience, and broader international uh, international audience as well. Definitely. And on, on a more kind of pertinent note related to the now, in the last two days we've spoken about it um, in recent times, but we've seen horrific attacks in both Mykolaiv and in Venezia. How has disinformation and the warfare, the, the digital warfare that you've referenced, how does it play into these attacks as the world reacts to these absolutely awful atrocities? I think that there are a few dimensions here. First of all, uh, we all should admit that Russia shifted totally to terrorist tactics. Uh, Russia and uh, the Kremlin um, haven't managed to take any strategic goal uh, in eastern or southern Ukraine for all these months of uh, full-scale invasion. So now Russia applies uh, terrorist tactics and uh, it should be uh, uh, recognized as a terrorist state. Uh, That's how Russia tries to incline Ukraine, to push Ukraine to so-called peaceful negotiations and uh, accept uh, Russian conditions. In terms of disinformation, here I would say that the most fascinating thing that we observe right now is how Russia um, promotes this whole war for its domestic audience. It's managed to convince their own people that all these missiles attacks, that all this murdering of civilians, you know, innocent people are staged. And unfortunately, many people in Russia, they believe uh, in this. Uh, Regarding the international audience, I think the main goal is to divide us uh, from uh, our international partners 
Now we observe very serious uh, operation, um, disinformation operation on trying to show that Ukraine uh, is not u- using uh, weapons we get from our partners properly, that Ukraine sell these weapons, that Ukraine um, like cannot man- manage this uh, uh, assistance we get. Which is not true, uh, and we see we we get it from the interceptions uh, of Russian soldiers and their families and their friends. We listen to them a lot, and we see that they are actually terrified with the way Ukrainians use these weapons. And another very serious disinformation is of, uh, of um, disinformation operations um, is about uh, trying to basically exploit this tiredness of the West. Uh, of the war. The West is uh, distracted, there are many things happening, and Russia is trying to convince our allies that Ukraine, that this war is a regional conflict and uh, uh, Ukraine has to accept peaceful negotiations and uh, it, doesn't re- it doesn't very much um, uh, need uh, more sanctions or more assistance. Um, so, yeah, this division between Ukraine and uh, um, our neighbors, our allies, it's something that uh, is in, in Russia's uh, favor and interest. And you, you mentioned Russian, Russian trying to convince people that these awful, horrific attacks that we've spoken about are staged. How are they actually doing that? Is it numerous propaganda channels that you're then trying to combat with your own strategic communications? Absolutely. Unfortunately, in Russia, people um, take information mostly from the government uh, uh, media channels. And uh, this whole media machine in Russia is huge and uh, it consists of total propaganda. And uh, it's very difficult, actually, to break this information space uh, for independent channels. Uh, and even when we try to bring truth to Russian people, when we target them on social media, when we are trying to show them that uh, what actually happened here in Ukraine, uh, people very often do not believe uh, in what we are saying. Moreover, uh, we see that people... Uh, in Russia, very often are proud of uh, Russian military, Russian forces are doing in Ukraine. When we show them, it, it happened just yesterday after this missile attack on Vinnytsia, uh, which took 23 uh, lives of civilians, and this number is not final. Uh, some people are still in critical conditions, and we expect, expect that this number will increase. So uh, we observed yesterday that many Russian citizens uh, on social media, they showed that they're actually proud and they called Ukrainian uh, children and Ukrainian civilians Nazis, uh, which is all absolutely bizarre. You know, like it, it's, it's very difficult to believe in such things uh, in 21st century. But somehow Russian propaganda machine managed to convince these people that uh, uh, the Western world is uh, russophobic, that it's a duty of uh, Russia and Russian people to combat uh, the West, 
because the West is Nazi and Ukraine is Nazi. So it's like a big picture. And uh, unfortunately, the West uh, didn't notice how uh, very dangerous uh, processes started to unfold in Russia. It happened not just, you know, a couple of uh, months ago, not in uh, February when the full-scale invasion began. Uh, it actually started happening much, much before in 2014 uh, when uh, Russian propaganda machine um, uh, launched a lot of very uh, anti-Western, anti-Ukrainian narratives. And uh, now we see the consequences of this work. I guess my, my next question that leads on from that would be as a Ukrainian strategic advisor how what tactics can you do to combat that and how have you found that your your messaging and trying to cut through those that propaganda how have you found that that's changed in the 142 days since the invasion first of all um i think that ukrainians if we speak about ukrainian information space ukrainians of course see uh, what Russia does. It's like it's a physical threat. It's not just propaganda, right? So uh, we are being killed. Uh, we see this uh, absolutely genocidal war Russia conducts against us. So uh, uh, obviously it, 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 there is no need to explain um, to Ukrainians that Russia is a threat. Uh, but uh, uh, we also see that Russia's tactics in Ukraine has changed with years and especially now. Now uh, the Kremlin is trying to polarize us, to divide us internally. So they basically uh, push simultaneously different narratives. They support different uh, opinions and different sides uh, and trying to uh, make everything possible so we, we start fight with each other. Because then our attention is diverted then we are not focused on Russia and um, combating uh, Russian forces. And this is very dangerous because basically they apply the same tactics uh, in the West as well. And let's just uh, recall uh, American elections when uh, Russia was uh, putting eggs uh, in different baskets, uh, simultaneously supporting both Republicans and Democrats. So this is something that uh, should be learned uh, much more uh, carefully, uh, because it is uh, very subversive, right? Yeah, and what can Western countries, or what do you think Western countries or governments should be doing about that threat so that they're not caught late again? I think that at this stage, it's extremely important to understand that the current regime in Russia is evil, and we all have to get united and to fight this evil. Uh, it's not, you know, some political tensions or some political uh, regional conflict. It's a, a totalitarian uh, regime which is conducting genocidal war against the whole nation. A huge nation, a huge country in the heart of Europe. And uh, the thing is that uh, if Russia finishes with us, it will go further. And it's not a theory. It's not, you know, some uh, propaganda tales. We see and we've been analyzing what they're saying about um, other countries as well. And there is no doubt that Russia will attack 
uh, other democratic nations if Ukraine uh, surrenders. But of course, Ukrainian people are not going to do it. And now this is the matter of uh, cost. You know, uh, if we get support from our allies, if uh, our uh, international partners impose more sanctions on Russia, if our partners refuse to trade with Russia and buy Ukraine, uh, Russian gas and oil, and if our partners um, provide more assistance to Ukraine, this war uh, will be over much sooner and uh, much, uh, with much uh, less casualties. Uh, so the, the most important thing right now is to get united and to resist. Uh, Ukrainians are not asking to fight for Ukraine, right? We, we are going to fight, but we ask to give us weapons and to, give, and to impose more sanctions on Russia to end this war. And my final question is, you're, you've studied in Kyiv, you're in Ukraine. What can you tell our listeners about the, the morale, the, the situation that you're experiencing there at the moment? It's a very good question because, uh, you know, the, war, the full invasion started uh, back in February. And uh, I remember back then, all of us, Every Ukrainian um, was asking the same question. Why? Why do they hate us so much? What did we we do to them? You know, and uh, now at this stage, we we understand that they just want to destroy us. It's not about territories. It's not about our land. They just want to kill us as uh, many as possible. So the morale is uh, very high because it's a matter of our survival. Uh, you know, we don't have a way back. We don't have another land or territory to occupy. So we have to fight, and uh, we have to continue to, to resist. And um, it doesn't really matter how, how uh, long it will take. It's just a matter of coast. And, uh, of, 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 uh, and the coast is very high. Uh, it's people's lives. And uh, that's why we ask to give us more weapons and put more sanctions on Russia. And uh, just yesterday, after this uh, missile attack, uh, our social media uh, uh, were flooded with comments like, uh, we cannot surrender, we have to continue to fight. And this fury, you know, this pain gives us strength. And uh, I wish our allies, uh, could understand that uh, it's not a threat just to Ukraine. It's a threat to a democratic world, and we have to defeat it. That seems an extremely fitting note to end on, unless there's anything that you'd like to say, Lyubov, to our listeners that you don't think we've covered today. I mean, we're very happy to obviously have you back on the podcast because I'm sure there's much, much more we could have covered. Um, but is there anything else that you'd like to say before we sign off today? I would say that just do not uh, divert your attention. I understand that it's very tiresome. I understand that a lot of things are happening. And maybe you sometimes think that this war goes on so long and uh, uh, you cannot uh, focus your attention that long. But believe me, uh, every day Ukraine um, loses people's lives. And it's not, you know, military. 
uh, it's mostly civilians, it's mostly children, you know, totally innocent people, because Russia doesn't follow any rule of law uh, of war. Um, and, um, you know, as back in uh, Second World War, uh, at some point, your prime minister uh, understood that uh, that evil should have been defeated, right? And it's not ma- a, a task for one country. It's a task for the civilized, democratic world. And here we have the same situation. And if the evil is not punished, then it only encourages him uh, or her to to go on uh, to to um, go offensive again and again. And Russia has to be admitted as a terrorist state because if we do not do it, then there will be much more uh, losses, much more killed innocent people, uh, and much more tears and pain. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Charles Gear, And today on Twitter, Sophie Coe.